Amen. All right, pop quiz. It's not that hard. Remember the Ten Commandments? What was the first one? When Moses came down with those tablets written with the finger of God. There's ten of them, right? What was the first one? Anybody? Yeah, no other gods. I heard King James coming out. I heard new translations. All good, right? Don't have any other gods before me. Now, that's negatively put, but positively put, the greatest commandment, as Jesus affirmed, is love the Lord your God, right? So love the Lord your God is what you're supposed to do. What does it look like when you don't do that? It looks like putting other gods before him, right? And so that's why that do not, the negative, the negative list of those Ten Commandments, that gets at, put at the top of the list, don't have any other gods before me. Now, here's what's tricky about that. We can go, hey, you can come to my house. I don't have idols on the mantle. I don't have any graven images. I'm, I'm not burning incense to like weird shapes and images, you know, so I'm good. Uh, but we're not, though, because there are many ways in which we break that first commandment not just in the obvious ways of literally having graven idols that we put before God. And so it's really not that simple. Now, I want to preface the sermon also by saying sometimes we need to hear difficult things before we're ready to hear a good, positive, beautiful thing. And this sermon is going to be front-heavy with some tough stuff, but I hope that you don't just get up and walk out. I hope that you'll hang in and see that the Lord has something really good for us, if we're willing to listen to the tough stuff. So we find ourselves in 1 Samuel. What is going on? If you've not been tracking with us in 1 Samuel, or if it's been a long time since you've been in 1 Samuel or looked at it, God has a people that he's uh, called out unto himself. Out of all the peoples on the earth, God called Israel to himself. And uh, it's not because Israel was special. They were very not special. Abraham was a nobody until God said, you. And the people of Israel are not people of great stature. They're not people of great wealth. They were slaves for 400 years prior to being brought out into the wilderness. In the wilderness, they're like, what in the world, God? You, you rescued us, and now we have to trek this wilderness. He's like, trust me, trust me. They have a bad habit of not trusting him. And so Israel's relationship with this God that rescued them is up and down and up and down and up and down. I trust you, I don't trust you. Ah, oh, you saved me, thank you, but ooh, I want to do my own thing. Up and down, up and down, back and forth. And so as you're reading through the Bible, you can get really frustrated with Israel until, ooh, you remember, we're Israel. We're no different than they are. We want to worship other things. We don't, we don't trust him fully. We want to go our own way. And the messes we make in our lives are oftentimes due to the things we do that step out of line with what God has already revealed. We just didn't want to listen. And so that's where we find Israel, and they're learning their lesson over and over and over again. They thought as long as they had religious things in their lives that they're good. As long as they had a temple and as long as they had priests, they're good. As long as they had the ark, they're good. They even brought the ark out into the battlefield. Remember, this will help us conquer. And they got defeated Badly, badly, thousands of people died because they just thought as long as we have holy furniture, we don't need God, we just need the holy things that are about God. And God was like, no, I'm not a piece of furniture. And so we learn that lesson as we're moving through with uh, uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And they really learn that lesson hard, especially with the whole situation with uh, that holy piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. They really learn that lesson. 
And verse 2 of chapter 7, that's actually where we left off last time, ended by saying, they lamented after the Lord. You remember that? You don't have to remember. Hopefully you listened to me a few moments ago and actually turned to 1 Samuel 7. It's right there in front of you in verse 2. They lamented after the Lord, meaning, okay, we're messed up. My life is messed up. I've done messed up things with it. I'm tired of trying to figure it out. Lord, we need you. So that's where God has them. That's where God wants them. And so what we're going to see as we move into this story is uh, they've been going without Samuel. Remember the beginning of 1 Samuel is like, here's this person born miraculously and God's going to raise him up. And then Samuel disappears for a few chapters, right? We don't hear anything about Samuel. They don't consult Samuel. They don't care what Samuel has to say. They don't ask him his opinion. They do their own thing. There's no Samuel for all these chapters where all these deaths and bad things are happening because they're not listening. And then now they're like, okay, we're ready to listen. And Samuel steps in and is like, well, here's how you turn things around. So if that's you this morning and you're ready to turn things around, this passage was literally written for you right where you are. 1 Samuel chapter 7. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read just verses 3 and 4. And then we're going to just press into what that means for a while. I think most of... Most of our time is probably on three and four, and then we'll, we'll move through the rest of the chapter a little bit more quickly. But I think we need to pause and, and reflect on what this, just this tight little paragraph means. Okay, so here's Samuel, the, the one that's supposed to help, but they didn't want his help. Now they want help. Verse three, it says, and Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Now that's the gist of it. The rest of the verses in this chapter go into more details, and we're going to get to those. And we'll, we'll treat those kind of more quickly. But right now we see that they're still embroiled in these fights with the Philistines. Samuel steps in. They say they're repenting. They're at least lamenting. I mean, they're, they feel sorry for what they've done. They, they feel terrible about this mess. And they're lamenting after the Lord. So in other words, they're, they're posturing themselves toward God in some way. But is it repentance though? And so, you know, Samuel steps in and is like, well, if it's repentance then you'll do this and that. In other words, we see right off the bat, there is a kind of repentance that's not a wholehearted repentance, and there's a kind of repentance that is a wholehearted repentance. Which one do you think Samuel wants? He says it right there. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, Paul, this is where Paul talks about a godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow. Someone can be caught in the consequences of their own sin and feel really bad about it. Yeah, you would feel really bad about it because it's terrible and it has terrible consequences in your life. But that's not necessarily repentance. That could just be, I really hate where I'm at right now. That's different than I love the Lord, right? So Samuel's not going, you guys have had, God's had enough of you. you too late to repent. You guys are terrible. He doesn't say that, but nor does he go, oh, sure. Waltz right in. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Just serve, serve the Lord. Start serving the Lord. And he's like, let's, let's talk about this. I hope you're repentant. I really hope you're coming to him for the right reasons. 
And I really hope that you're returning to the Lord with all your heart. But if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, it looks like something, and I should be able to discern it in your life if it's a real return to the Lord. And so God is after genuine, wholehearted returning. And it looks like exclusive worship of the Lord, right? What does it say in the paragraph? Right there. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people did what? They put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. Twice there. Serve him only. Serve him only. This is not a hard concept. If you're dating somebody and you're telling them, I really, let's, you know what, let's get married. Okay, but I'm, you're still dating like other, four other girls. Yeah, I know, but you know. No, that doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense. If that makes sense to the person, to the girl, then you, it, you all have different problems. Exclusivity comes with the territory when it comes to a relationship. And so this shouldn't be news. They're, and, the, you know, they're not going, Samuel, this is, we never thought of this before. That's crazy. That's crazy town, Samuel. Serve him only? What kind of God demands that? No, they get it. They get it. They've been cheating on God. They've been surrounding God. They've been smuggling in other things and not serving him only. So Samuel's saying, hey, I want you to return. The Lord wants you to return. But if you're truly returning to the Lord, it looks like an exclusive worship where you are serving him only. Now, this is obviously a paragraph about idolatry. They've got all these idols that they've got to put away, the Ashtaroth and the idols that represent Baal and all this stuff, these foreign gods, as it says there. They have all these foreign gods that they need to put away. If they're putting them away, what does that look like? Verse 3, serve the Lord only. At the end of verse 4, serve the Lord only. Here's what I need you to understand. Here's what we all need to understand. Idolatry is not about what you carve. Idolatry is about what you serve. So he doesn't say, put away all those carvings and just carve stuff that look like me. Remember the second commandment? Don't carve anything that looks like me because you can't put me in a carving. That's the second commandment. No graven images. You're like, why would I have graven images if I obeyed the first commandment, which is no other gods? Because sometimes we go, okay, no other gods, but I'm going to take God and create him into what I want him to be and carve him into some little thing that I can kind of control. And God's like, no, I'm, I'm bigger than that. You can't do that either. But what's happening in this passage, he's not saying no carvings. He's saying no other servings. Don't serve anything else and serve me only. Meaning, underneath idolatry is not about the object. It's not about the carving. It's about the serving. What do we serve instead of Yahweh? What do we serve in competition with the Lord? And those are the things that he's wanting us to take account of. Every idol in anyone's life makes demands in exchange for a promise. That's how these gods function. You know, you've read about this. You have the God of love. So you really want, you're in love with this girl and you want her, you want her attention to be on you and not on anybody else. And so you would serve that God of love to help you out in this department. Or agriculturally, the crops aren't doing well this year. and How are we going to eat? Well, let's serve, let's make a sacrifice to the God of crops, Right? Gods were in charge of certain departments in many ancient 
uh, near eastern religions and god's like you need to put all those away because i'm in charge of actually everything and so all you need to do is serve me and then let me take care of everything and our temptation is to be like no 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 god i want you to be in charge of this department and let me serve other things for other departments that's what was happening You know, it's easy for us to be like, Israelites, man, they're so dumb. Or just ancient people in general are so dumb. They didn't have universities. They didn't have libraries like we do. They didn't have Siri to ask any question you want. You know, we're not smarter. We just have easier access to stuff. And like, look at these people. You know, they're they're worshiping things made out of poles and sticks. They're so dumb. But what Samuel's, what this book, 1 Samuel, is showing us is our hearts don't change and our hearts tend toward the same things. And so it might not look like something we carved, but it does look like something we serve. And if we're serving other things instead of the Lord, we're in the same boat. That's the problem. Gods make demands of you. So if you wanted that girl's attention or if you wanted that guy's attention, you don't just go up to that God of love and say, hey, I want you, that God of love will be like, well, sacrifice me something. You want the crops to change and you go up to that crop God and you want that God to do something for you with regard to crops. That crop God is like, well, do something for me then. Okay, I'll sacrifice this. It got so bad, not in this particular time, but it got so bad where uh, people were sacrificing their own children. Babies. Slaughter it. Why? Because how do I demonstrate how badly I want this God to do something for me? I can sacrifice something little or I can sacrifice something big. What's the biggest thing in my life I can sacrifice? My own kid? Unless we go, we would never do that. Don't people though? Of course we do. There's all manner of ways in which we can serve other things instead of serving the Lord. It doesn't have to show up as an idol on your mantle or some graven image on your dashboard. It's about the things that we serve. So we don't identify idols by looking around and seeing the objects in our living room. We identify idols by looking around and seeing what we compromise on, on the things that belong to the Lord. We don't view the Lord's demands as requirements so that you can get saved. But notice what Samuel is saying is, I'm trying to discern whether you're a, a saved person. If you're a person that, the type of person that God does save, And the type of person that God does save is about exclusive worship. That's how I'm going to discern whether you're returning is real. So it's not God going, hey, do A, B, and C, and then I'll think about saving you. It's the person that God saves is a person of a certain kind of heart. And that heart is solely devoted to God. And it's not mixed with other things that we're trying to serve. So let me provide you some examples, I think, to hopefully drive this home. Here's an example. We know that true repentant people love scripture. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. What's it, what does a blessed person look like? A blessed person looks like someone who loves scripture instead of like, ah, waste of time. There's a difference there. So we know that truly repentant people love scripture But other things demand our time and attention with regard to what we read and what we study. Our careers demand that we read emails and reports. Our schools demand that we read textbooks. For parents, our schools demand that we read never-ending emails and updates on 
any number of things. Sports demand that we read our phones to keep up with scores, trades, rankings. Our big purchases demand that we read contracts and find print. Now, you might be like, well, I don't, I don't, I'm not really a reader. Yeah, you probably are. It's just, what are we reading? And the world pulls at us, read this, read this, read this. You have to read all this stuff to keep up. Now, is it sinful to read all those things? No, unless the thing that gets choked out is reading God's word, actually. That's the one I don't have time for. I've got to read this, otherwise I'm going to not be able to keep up with my sports team. I've got to read this, otherwise I'm not going to be able to keep up with my kids' education. I've got to read this because et cetera, et cetera. It's not that reading those things is in and of themselves sinful. It's when we take those things that are mundane, benign, not, not morally this way or that way, we take it and we put it before the Lord, then it becomes, then it becomes a problem. And so if all those other things take precedent, what gets left behind is reading God's word. The question is, how am I different than the Israelites? How am I different? I need this to secure this. I need that to satisfy that. And so God gets relegated to a corner in your life. They didn't, they didn't say, we're not going to serve Yahweh anymore. They just put him in a corner and they introduced other things to satisfy other things. That makes sense? So it's not an abandonment like, you know what, Yahweh, forget you. Forget you. We're just going to go become Philistine. They're like, no, we're not Philistines. We actually don't like them. We want, we want to defeat them. And we want Yahweh on our side, but in a corner. And that's how idolatry sneaks into anyone's life. Here's another quick example. We know that true repentant believers, truly repentant believers love gathering together. We get that front to back in scripture. People that are God's people gather together with God's people. None of this lone ranger, lone wolf stuff. But other things demand our time and attention with regard to keeping company. If an employer wants to grab lunch, you'd be a fool to turn that down. If a friend wants to grab Starbucks, most of us make room for that. That makes sense. We dedicate ourselves to the gym. We dedicate ourselves to the hobby, to the mom's group, to the enthusiast group, to marathon training, to the chess club, all which demand gathering with people in some way. Again, anything wrong with any of those? No. The problem is when they pull away, they pull at you, and they pull you away from spending time with your church family, which scripture makes clear is central to the life of the believer. Do you see what I'm trying to do? If we just go... The problem with idols is graven images. We're just going to read through 1 Samuel like, I'm glad I'm not those stupid people. But if we realize there are other sneaky ways in which other things pull our attention away from God, when God's like, hey, I should be the, the, your central point of attention, and we're kind of sticking him in a corner, what I'm saying is we have the same problem that Israel has in this passage because they still wanted to serve Yahweh. They just wanted to group him with other gods. You'll see in the text, real repentance redirects your heart. That's an interior thing. Verse 3, right? Direct your heart to the Lord. That's a heart issue, and that's what, that's what makes this difficult. Right? So I might be into those hobbies, and I might be reading those emails, but where's my heart in all of those things? Is the Lord taking precedent in my heart? And this is why we serve what we serve. It's a, it's a heart matter, and it takes real discernment, but again, it's about what drives you, it's what takes up your time, it's what prompts you to sacrifice things that the Lord requires of us. I know the Lord requires this and wants this of me, but I'm going to sacrifice that so that I can do this over here because this is going to produce something that I want. That's how it sneaks in. 
And you should also notice that if the heart is directed to the Lord, how does that show up in somebody's life? By putting away the idols. That's two times here, right? Two times, put away the idols. That's in verse three, and then you see it again in verse four. Put it away, put it away. So if your heart is directed toward really serving the Lord, then it looks like putting all this other stuff away. So the thing about idols is that when somebody repents, we smash those things. We put them away. Put them away here doesn't mean stick them in storage for another season, you know. Put away means put that away from your life. It's so surprising to think that Israel would put other gods next to Yahweh and try to serve them all as kind of one group, right? Why would they do that? The technical term is called syncretism. And what syncretism is, is not abandoning God, but seeing God as one, maybe even the best, of a company of things that I serve. It's a group. God might be the best of them. He might be at the top of it, but it's still a sort of a conglomerate that I worship. It's not exclusively Yahweh himself. And people have done this for ages. That's what they were doing here. We'll take a little Yahweh, a little of this God, a little of that pole, a little of the Baals, and we'll put it all together. That way we have everything. If Yahweh's ticked, maybe Baal will help us. If Baal and Yahweh is ticked, maybe we should try out this other God over here. It's the attempt to group other objects of worship with God rather than replacing God outright. But what God is saying is if you do that, you basically have replaced me outright. From God's perspective, it's all the same thing. Grouping him with other gods or rejecting him outright, both result in God going, I'm not with you. That's what we just learned in the first few chapters. God's not with them. He's like, what are you talking about? We have the ark. But you're grouping me and I, I don't, I'm not having that. God will not be grouped He is not for syncretism. So, when your mind and your heart is really after God and is really directed toward God, it shows up as exclusive worship. And if it shows up as exclusive worship, that means we're putting away the other things that are vying for our worship attention. So, how does that play into church life? If we're... If we're interested in God things, we're interested in church things because we get something out of it. And that thing that we get out of it is our central thing. Then we're idolaters. Why is that? The reason why that's tricky is because we do get positive things out of worshiping God, don't you? You do get positive things out of out of church and gathering and fellowship. It's God gives us enjoyable things to enjoy. It's like a parent discerning, do my kids really love me or do they love me because I provide for them? That question is mixed up with a lot of things, right? Of course, one of the things your children love about you is that you provide for them because if you didn't, you'd be a big fat jerk and they shouldn't love you. You're a bad parent. But if you only love your parents just because of the stuff they give you and outside of the stuff they give you, you could care less about them That's not good either. So how do you discern that when the gifts are good gifts and the provisions are good provisions and the parent's a good parent? You've got to discern that by doing some interior work. That's why this is about the heart. Some of us who are in the, uh, the, one of the book clubs that we do here 
at CFC, particularly the men's book club, book club, the last one we read is Thomas Bergler's book called The Juvenilization of American Christianity. And uh, I'll just introduce you to one concept that he had in there. And, and I'll show you why this is really relevant in a minute. He talked about how decades ago, people, now I don't, I'm not sure how right he is on this, but let's just, let's, I'll just lay it out. Decades ago, people that wanted to be really progressive, and by progressive, I, I do mean that in the, like the pejorative sense. They wanted to be really progressive, but secular society was still too conservative for that stuff. And so they found a voice in liberal churches. Liberal churches provided a platform for them to hem and haw about whatever they wanted society to progress on. Okay? Liberal churches are like, we don't want to lose these people, so let's accommodate that and give them a platform. But then what happened is as broader society, secular society, allowed the platforming and the mainstreaming of those progressive thoughts, now I don't need church anymore to platform my progressive thinking. And when you don't need church anymore to platform your progressive thinking, you don't need to go to church anymore. And according to Thomas Berger, he's saying that's why we've seen the implosion of liberal mainline churches. Now, if his point is that in that particular scenario, people going to church not for God but for another agenda, in that case, in that particular case, a progressive agenda, when that agenda is satisfied, that itch is scratched outside of church, then I don't need church anymore. And then it exposed why they were really going to church. Does that make sense? This one might cut a little more. I wonder if churches that are focused on ethnic identity do that. I'm not saying they all do. I'm saying it's really easy to do that. So if I go to a church that is mainly Puerto Ricans and the pastor's Puerto Rican and the music has a salsa flair to it and we eat empanadas afterwards, is it easy for someone like me to love that? Yeah, that's great. I love the food. I love the music. That's cool. But if outside of that, I find that in a college group, the Latin American club at my university, and now that itch is getting scratched there, and that's really why I was going to church, I don't really need church anymore because I wasn't there for God. I was there for ethnic identity. Well, you could do it with progressivism. You could do it with politics. You could do it with ethnicities. There's any number of ways. We could, we could do it with friendships. I'm lonely. I don't have friendships. If I go to church, I have friendships, great friends. But what happens when you get a new job, you start getting introduced to new people, you go out to Top Golf, and you're really gaining some great friends over there, and you find you don't really need church for friendships anymore because your, your friendship itch is getting scratched elsewhere. Do you still need church? Now, for a lot of us, we're like, yeah, I have friends all over the place. Great, then you're not suffering from this particular problem. And I laud you for that. But it's hard for this to be exposed in our lives unless we're in a place where we're tested. We're trusted, tested to trust the Lord and we're tested to, to really dig and find out, am I at church for the right reasons? Am I at church for the Lord or am I at church because I get something out of it? Of course, we should get things out of it, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't check our hearts and make sure there isn't some ulterior reason 
Am I really at church because I want to follow the Lord or is it a conviction that my spouse has and I go along? I wonder if marriage might be an idol for you in that case. Is church a place to hang out with friends? We'll cover that one. Will you still need the church if your friendship itches scratched somewhere else? For those of us who serve, don't worry, I, I, I know my guns are blazing right now. They're about to turn on me. But for those of us who serve up here, instruments, singing, that's really fun. It's really fun to do this. But if you join a band, and now you got rip-roaring fun, you got the band, you got way bigger audience than we have here, probably a lot more movement, literal spotlights on you, that can be really fun and enjoyable. Does church become less important? Well, then that might be a sign that maybe we were here doing it for the wrong reason. Now, what if I start getting invited to speak here, there, and everywhere? Lucas, you're such a great speaker. Can you speak at this conference? Can you speak over here? Can you speak at the school? Can you speak at this university? Would that expose in my heart that I'm really not here for CFC? I'm here to get my public speaking on. Is that possible? I think it's possible. I don't think it's true. I just wanted to shoot some bullets my own way. It's possible that it's true. And I see ministers do it all the time. Where it's the public platform, it's the following, it's the pastor this, it's the titles, it's the wow, great job, I love how you speak. Instead of being for the Lord. Now it's hard to discern these things because, like I said, it's a heart issue. So how do we figure out what are the things that we need to put away? Let me press into this application a little more and then we'll finish up with this text gives us some real positive stuff and it's awesome, but let's just let it sting just for a a couple more minutes. Okay, how do we figure out how to put things away that need to be put away, especially when those things aren't bad things? This would be an easy sermon if I was like, stop doing drugs. Put it away, stop it, and don't do them. Well, yeah, that's a category. Okay, stop sleeping around on your spouse. Be faithful. Okay, those are things we need to address. I want to talk about the sneaky ones that are good things, but they become bad things because we make them idle things. We, we, we group them with God and we, we, we go to those things to get things out of them that we feel like we're not getting from God himself. That's a little harder and that's why I just want to linger here just for a couple more minutes and then we'll press, press ahead and wrap up. How do we discern what we have to put away? How do we discern what our hearts are directed towards? It might be as simple as a schedule adjustment. A literal adjustment to how you spend your time. Because the things we serve tend to crowd out the things of the Lord. And if we're always too busy for God, but we're never too busy for the things that bring us satisfaction and security, then that's one way that we can discern that. What is taking priority? So how can we prioritize the things of the Lord over those things that are not as focused on the Lord to make sure that the Lord is central in our lives? While we're doing that, we're checking our motives because we could do the right things, but the motive might be off. So it's an interior work. Can I make sure I'm doing all these things for the glory of God, not for attention, even things that seem mundane? I mean like fishing or commuting or washing dishes. Nothing wrong with any of those things, but how can we do all those things for God's glory? And here's what you could do. You can compare and contrast your devotion to things. 
I'm really hesitating to step into this one because it's a, I don't understand the hype over a particular pop singer. Can I say that? Am I allowed to say that? Am I allowed to say that? I don't get it. I don't get it. Because I don't get it doesn't mean it's bad. I guess you do you. (laughs) And it doesn't mean that it's bad to like a pop singer or that the music itself is a bad thing. I guess we could say that for another sermon. But here are some questions we can ask. And this won't be the only example, but here are some questions we can ask. Do you spend more money following that pop singer, liking that pop singer, going after that pop singer than you do on church? Do you spend more time memorizing their words, their music, than you do lapping up the pure honey that drips from the word of God? If you were to meet this person, this person in person, would you faint? When scripture reserves the fainting for coming in close contact with the holiness of God, like when you would meet an angel, faint then. Don't faint for a singer. That's ridiculous. Does your heart flutter at all when we sing worship songs together or are there not enough dancers up here? We could turn the attention on everybody else because everybody that's not a Swifty up in here is like, yeah, you keep preaching. I'm going to keep preaching. (laughs) Some of us will say, hey, I will not miss a workout. I will not miss a workout, but we'll miss church. We'll wake up in the morning. The first thing we'll do is check my Twitter feed. I've got to check my Twitter feed. If I have nothing else to check, I've got to at least find out what's going on in my social circles. And we too easily skip our Bible reading. I almost hesitate to give these examples because they're, they're just easy. Things that take our attention from God, they're not necessarily bad things, but when we focus our attention on those things and God gets relegated to a corner, it's a form of idolatry. We're going after other things because they satisfy us in ways that God doesn't satisfy us yet. When God is saying, I'm the all satisfier, seek me. So it's not that we worship other gods, it's that we make gods out of other things. Now we're going to move much faster, like I promised. We're going to move much faster through the rest of this chapter. I normally don't spend that much time on like applying it, but I thought it was important. Now we're going to see Samuel show up. Samuel shows up on the scene and it's a big relief. You're reading this, you're like, oh. Thank you. Some direction. Because they've been directionless. And even at the point they want to lament after the Lord, they don't know how to do it. So Samuel has to show up and tell them, here's how you do it. So I want you to see how important a figure is, uh, how important uh, Samuel is as a figure in the story. So I'm going to read the rest of the verses, make a few comments, and then we'll wrap up. Starting in verse 5, we're going to go all the way to the rest of chapter 7. Notice how the focus is on how important Samuel is to turning things around for them. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Verse 8, and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord God for us that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord 
thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. A few quick observations before we wrap up. We see here a profile in repentance. Repentance looks like directing your heart to the Lord. If you're directing your heart to the Lord, it's exclusively to the Lord. And if it's exclusively to the Lord, you're putting away all the other things that compete for that attention. And then you see in this chapter how when they did that, when they did that, things changed. You remember back in chapter 4, they didn't consult Samuel. Remember? They didn't care what Samuel had to say. And they were defeated. Here, Samuel is consulted, and the Philistines are defeated. Back in chapter 4, they try to force God's hand by taking the ark and manipulating God. Here, they surrender to God in repentance. Back in chapter 4, God abandoned them. And you remember the key phrase was... Uh, Uh, the baby that was named Ichabod, God's glory has departed. There's the big name that ends chapter 4, and the the big name that ends chapter 7 is Ebenezer, which doesn't mean anything like Scrooge. It means the Lord has helped us to this point. He's been faithful. God has stepped in and helped. That's the opposite of of abandonment, right? So you see, if you take chapter 4 and chapter 7 together, you're like, here's what not repenting looks like. Big mess, and God not with you. But what does repentance look like? God's not sitting back hoping you defeat the Philistines, hoping you figure everything out. He steps in. He shows up in your life and defeats the things that need to be defeated, makes you, helps you do the things that you need to do. You don't do it on your own. You do it with the Lord's help. That's why they, rose that, they put up that stone, Ebenezer, not the stone that says, we finally did it. The stone that says, when we finally realized we couldn't do it, God stepped in and did it. That's what Ebenezer means. And it took Samuel showing up to do it. Now you saw real quickly, verse 6, 15, 16, 17, four different times, he is their judge. You saw that? He judged them. He judged. And if you're looking at that, you're like, well, he was judgy? Like you guys are so dumb. Like what, what kind of judge? What do you mean? Well, it meant he was a leader. Okay, it meant that he, he took the law of God and showed them how to live out the law. So in that way, he was a judge adjudicating between them. Here's how you do it. Here's how you live it out. And when they bring cases to them, he would lead them in that way. So he's sort of like a pre-king. So when it says that he's a judge, he's sort of serving in this king-like leader before they actually anoint a king, which we're going to see um, shortly here next week. We also see that he's teaching them. Verse 3, what do we do? He teaches them what to do, so he's functioning as a prophet. So we got two, prophet and king. What about the priest? 
Well, he's interceding for them. You remember? They were like, hey, we're going to go out to battle. Would you, don't pick up a sword. What we need you to do, Samuel, is be in prayer, interceding for us, because if God doesn't step in, we're toast, we're dead. So you need to be in prayer. And so he's functioning as a priest, going between them and God to make sure that their relationship with God is intact. So here's, here's the point. You're reading through 1 Samuel, and you're like, I'm like them. I'm leaderless. I'm lost. I keep trying to make things better myself, and I keep failing at it. What do I need? Well, not only do you need to truly repent and direct your heart to the Lord, like we've talked about, like I've mentioned already so many times, but we need a leader. We need someone to step in and function in those offices for us. We need someone that can step in like a prophet and tell us the truth. We need someone who steps in as a mediator to fix our relationship, uh, the relationship between us and God, to bridge that gap. And we need uh, a king who can lead us. Did I cover that one? Prophet, priest, king. Truth, mediation, and leadership. Samuel is fulfilling those in a kind of a way, but as we talked about before, Samuel represents the coming one who fills all three of those offices, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So we don't leave here going, all right, I'm going to go home, I'm going to smash all my idols, I'm going to be really devoted and make sure that I'm not doing other things more than I am focused on the Lord. Because that's still operating in our own strength, and that's like Israel going, we got this, we got this, all we need is just the ark. Let's just make our lives look a little more holy. All I'm going to do is just read the Bible a little more, and then suddenly my career is going to take off. No, that's not quite it. It's God demands all of me because he deserves all of me. He's supreme and over all things. He's number one, not me. And if I can get that, I come to the Lord in repentance going, Father, I, I've sinned in these ways. In these ways, I have put you second, third, fourth, fifth, last place. You need to be number one in my life, but I can't do it. I can't make you number one. I need to be changed. I need truth to change me. I need a mediator to change me. I need a king to lead me, and I can't do that on my own. Samuel is dead. So who do you turn to? The one that Samuel represents, and that is Jesus Christ himself. We have a special memorial, not a stone called Ebenezer, but we have things like our gathering and our songs. We have scriptures. We can read and understand how God has stepped in for his people over and over, time and time again, and there's no reason to not trust him. Make him number one in your life and let him take care of everything else. He's proved it over and over and over again. The greatest memorial we have is in these trays. You know, he, he spilled out the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf so that he, we can be led to do the right thing things that was his greatest demonstration of help on our behalf and that was his greatest display of his provision for you closing words let's discern our hearts we're not going to be in church 24 7 i'm not saying that couldn't even do it because if you come here monday morning you're alone i don't live here But we're supposed to worship the Lord through those other things. You worship the Lord through your career. Don't quit your career and become a missionary unless that's what God is calling you to do. But that's not what I'm saying up here. I'm saying, are you serving the Lord in your career? Are you serving the Lord in those commitments that you have, whether it be working out or whatever have you? Are you making sure that God is central to all those things so that when you pray, you can pray like Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. Your first, your central And everything I do, I want to do it to please you. Does this please you? Does this please you? I want to serve you in that way. So let's remember him, not once a week, 
but in everything that we do before him. Let's pray. Father, we're